Welcome to Haunted Spouse, a haunted house podcast. I'm your ghost host, Ben Casey, and this is my haunted spouse and co-host, Laura Casey. Hello! Today we're going to be talking about the 1959 William Castle film, House on Haunted Hill. Laura, why are we going to be talking about the 1959 William Castle film, House on Haunted Hill? Well, I'm glad you asked. One of the things that led me to wanting to make this podcast in the first place is that I wanted to trace the genealogy of the haunted house archetype. I noticed that House on Haunted Hill was often referenced in later haunted house movies, though I'd somehow never heard of it. I was particularly interested when I noticed that it came out the same year that Shirley Jackson published The Haunting of Hill House, 1959. Concurrently, a third haunted house classic was in development, The Haunted Mansion Attraction at Disneyland, so I thought this would be a good place to start. All right. Well, this particular film starred Vincent Price and Carol Omart as rich, eccentric hosts who invite a group of supposed strangers to spend the night in a haunted house, offering each guest $10,000 if they survive the night. In theaters, this film implemented Castle's Emerjo technology, <laughs> which involved swinging a skeleton through the theater during a corresponding scene. Also of note, this is the first film to star Skeleton, a human skeleton model who has his own IMDb page and 22 credits. Can't sneeze at that. Mm-mm. That's 22 well, more credits than I have. Well, he doesn't have a nose. Aw, womp womp. <laughs> Uh, also, spoiler alert for the 1999 William, 1959 William Castle film, House on Haunted Hill. So, if you have not seen this film yet, and you do not want it spoiled for you, go watch it now. Uh, it's public domain, so real easy to find. This has been your warning. Here we go. The film opens with some talking heads, is that literally. right? Literally. Yeah, literally talking <laughs> heads. Um, yes. They are floating in darkness. Uh, mm-hmm. Any thoughts about that effect? A little bit like Madame Leota, speaking of the Haunted Mansion. It's a little bit like that effect, kind of a translucent head. Not 100% sure if they're doing it as like a projection or if they did like a partial exposure or something. But yeah, uh, I mean, very first thing we get after some nice screams uh, is... Oh, I almost forgot about the screams. Yes. I Okay, that to me, was genuinely the scariest part of the movie. Yes. I don't know (laughs) what that says about me, but there was something about... So it opens on pitch black Mm -hmm. darkness, and it opens with a woman screaming, and it's a great scream. Yeah, very good one. But what's disconcerting about it, because I think a lot of films probably have opened like that, is that it stays dark for, like, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds? Like, it... It's a long time. It stays dark. You hear these sound effects of moans. Clinking chains. chains. Yeah. Um, I think there's a creaking door. Yep. And it's just long enough to be disconcerting because you're expecting the quote-unquote lights to come up. And they don't. And something about having that main sense that we use vision, like, cut off, really leads you to feel vulnerable in that Mm. moment. So I actually felt like that was really well done. Well, and also, you know what I'm realizing now kind of got me as well with that was it happens during the title card. And this being a film from 1959, I was kind of expecting to have a long, potentially like slightly musical 
title card where we go through like the title and maybe a little bit about who directed it and things like that. But instead we get just the title and then scream. Yep. Uh, so I think that kind of added to the suddenness of it. Just jump right in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we get that and then all of a sudden... <laughs> You're taken right out of it. We get our first character, Watson Pritchard. His head, translucent head, floats into view and gives us some exposition. To be fair, it's pretty standard haunted house exposition yeah it really sets up for um it's a really beautiful large mansion mm. um that was inherited from his brother yet at the same time there was this horrible murder that happened or a double murder i think yeah. that happened um to his brother he tried to spend one night at the house after he inherited it and he was barely found alive yeah um, at the end of the night so um, that definitely kind of sparks your interest, yeah. yeah, and sets the tone. And it's very that feels very classic to me. Yeah, um, and then his head floats away, and <laughs> it's pretty cheesy. It's yeah, uh, at least from a modern lens. Yes, that's going to be kind of the theme for a lot of the special effects in this film. Uh, I imagine that they were. Decent for the time, although I do know William Castle is known for his B-movies, so I imagine these probably weren't... Uh, I believe the Wikipedia article said that this movie was noteworthy for its use of carnival props. Ah. So that that, <laughs> that kind of frames something. about what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so Pritchard's head floats away and is replaced with the head of Vincent Price, who plays eccentric millionaire, uh, <laughs> which is almost funny now. Um Frederick Lauren. Yeah, and I thought he did just an amazing job throughout the entire film, but especially in this opening monologue. The monologue is given as exposition to set up this whole, it's a dinner party, or I guess it's not even a dinner party. There is no food served, which was an issue, mm-hmm. in my personal opinion. Um, it is a, a, a fancy party, I suppose. Um, a small exclusive party that he's holding. But at the same time, he also says you to bring the audience into the story. So it's in the second mm-hmm. person. This millionaire is inviting you to come to his home. And I believe he says that you have until midnight to arrive mm-hmm. um, and kind of gives the an overview of the terms, which don't remain consistent throughout yeah. the movie. Because at this point, he says that if you don't survive the night, the $10,000 will be given to your next of kin. But then later in the movie, he actually says that if you don't survive, then the 10,000 will be split among the rest of the surviving um, attendees. So, Which for some reason then nobody points out at that point that that could have been motivation for someone to murder the other guests. Mm -hmm. But we'll get into a little more about the inconsistencies. Yes. It just doesn't seem like consistency was a priority. Yes. Um, definitely an entertaining <laughs> film, but not not too much care given to internal consistency. Yes. Um, but I thought that monologue was really well delivered. Was really well delivered. Um, the second person was really interesting, especially because during this monologue, he introduces each of the guests mm-hmm. and explains a little bit about them and... 
I mean, the why he chose them is, he says, because they are all people who need money, um, despite coming from various walks of life. Um, He's kind of creating the impression that he wants to make sure that everyone really wants to be there. Um, and maybe also to increase this level of desperation. Mm. Um, and so they won't just probably also, so they just won't peace out when they realize what's going on if they get scared. Yeah. Um, it also reminded me this monologue of um, Haunted Mansion, that opening mm. kind of narration and how it is supposed to be in a similar way in the, in the second person, the uh, Disneyland attraction. And I noticed that at the end... Pritchard also gives the last few lines, I believe, and he goes into the second person again at the end. So I think that's mm-hmm. a nice framing. Yeah. Um, kind of, probably kind of hokey, and I, again, we'll get into, like, that's kind <laughs> of what uh, William Castle's deal was. Yes. But I think it was really effective because it's still kind of, I don't know, it's still kind of <laughs> fun, still gives me a little bit of a of a thrill um, listening to it now in 2021 when it's considered a trope. So, yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think if it wasn't the origination, I think they did a great job with it. Mm-hmm. One thing of note real quick that I thought was a neat decision made by the uh, characters slash, I think in particular in this case, Annabelle Lauren, uh, but also a decision made by the filmmakers to have them all arrive in funeral cars. I, I don't know. I thought that was cool, both on the meta level of the the writers thought to have them come in that way, and also on like the character level of the characters thinking like, oh, this would be kind of a fun little tone setting feature, I yeah, guess, to have them show up in hearses. Definitely quite macabre. Very macabre. I think. <laughs> If we're splitting hairs here, they said that there was a hearse, and then following, oh, the yes. attendees arrive in funeral cars, funeral which cars. means something. Yeah, I don't know I don't know if that what. just means cars that would take part in a funeral procession. I don't... Or if there was, like, a certain, like, maybe there were certain types of chauffeured cars that you would have at a funeral at that time. That's not a reference, I understand, but there's, it was still pretty cool and pretty creepy. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I loved that. That was really cool. And yeah, so that is kind of the setting for how we're introduced to these characters. Mm-hmm. It also, while we're talking about it, gave me, and then there were none flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think throughout the film, that was the vibe that I got, was it felt like a little bit of Clue. It felt like a little bit of Haunting of Hill House and a little bit of, and then there were none, of this question of is there a murderer at this party and who is the murderer? And we got to figure it out before they kill us. That all felt very Agatha Christie. Definitely. And ultimately the movie couldn't really decide which one of those things it was going to settle on and kind of ends up trying to be all of them. So the first attendee we're introduced to, other than uh, Watson Pritchard, who, again, is the person who owns the house but has not stayed there for more than one night. Mm -hmm. Um, So he is technically an attendee. Frederick Lauren, Vincent Price, is the host. So the next attendee we're introduced to is Lance Schroeder. He is a test pilot. Lauren notes that I know for a fact he needs the money. But, of course, I don't think it's ever revealed, like, what that's supposed to mean. 
Yeah. Yeah, we, we really never learn that much about him. Uh, surprisingly, we learn less about him than we do about the ingenue. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh-huh. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so next we have Ruth Bridges. She is a newspaper journalist. Uh, she claims to be attending the party for the purpose of writing an article about haunted houses, uh, but secretly she is a gambler in uh, pretty dire need of cash flow. And just in general, the movie treats her like a prop. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> she, We never learn anything more about her, and she appears as the story needs her to appear and disappears when the story no longer needs her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she does only what the plot needs her to do, and it doesn't come up at all that she's a journalist <laughs> or a gambler. No, yeah, I think at one point maybe she pries with uh, Frederick Lauren about how quickly they'll get the money. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. She's yep. Yeah, she's there for some spooky things to happen to, but none of those spooky things ever go anywhere. They're just there to spook you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Dr. David Trent, who is a psychiatrist. He is attending the party... He says to study hysteria, but Mr. Lauren claims that he sees a greedy look in his eye. One common trope that we see in some horror movies is that you have a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist or something. Some person who is just like science. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's a doctor. Yeah. Um, not that a psychiatrist isn't a doctor, but more of a <laughs> medical doctor with more of a traditional uh, doctory focus. <laughs> I will give this movie props for getting it right that they have a psychiatrist here and he does do some medical stuff. So that actually checks out because a psychiatrist would have an MD, assuming it was still the same at the time. So rather than pulling the thing where they're like, oh, this person's a doctor of biology, <laughs> but they have a doctor's bag for some reason. For some reason that they carry uh, around. Or this is a psychologist, but they're doing psychiatrist things because we don't know the difference. Right, right. In this case, they actually got it right. And to be fair, in the, in I think in the 50s, at this point, there would have been pretty blurred lines between psychiatrists and psychologists. Good point. But, yes, that is something that's a pet peeve of mine in movies when they're like, this person is Dr. So-and-so, and it's earlier mentioned that they're they have a doctorate in like history or something (laughs) not even science (laughs) and then they're like performing emergency first aid beyond what you would typically know um Mm -hmm. so yeah oftentimes you have someone who's interested in studying fear or who wants to study the effects of the haunting on the person or maybe a paranormal researcher Mm -hmm. um present and in this case i thought it was interesting that he was invited but he wasn't actually the guy who organized the thing because usually they're the person who organizes the whole uh expedition so yeah it's a little different yeah a little different and in this case like kind of playing that role of the rationalist Mm -hmm. the person whose job it is to say like no ghosts aren't real so that can't be a thing 
And, like, that character is always there just to be proven wrong Mm -hmm. in the story. Or ultimately proven right. Or ultimately proven right. Yeah. Every now and again. When it comes to haunted house stories, usually they're proven (laughs) wrong. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I think they're proven right. Or they think they're right, but they just never saw what actually happened. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like they're there to specifically to doubt the other characters. Mm -hmm. None of which happens in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Or... Uh, well, well, yeah. Actually, I mean, his job right. in he this does, is to he does play that role. Mm-hmm. He just has a larger role in the yes, grand scheme, which, which we'll we get will to. get to. We keep saying. Um, <laughs> then there's Nora Manning, who is an employee of Lauren, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. She is a typist, I believe. We find out she is. They call her a young girl. Uh, uh-huh. She is not a child. She. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she they... appears to be, like, maybe in her 20s, I, I think is what we're supposed to assume. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, if we had to describe her, probably that ingenue role, maybe she's got a little something going on with, what's his face, Lance, Lance. the pilot. We kind of see that spark at the very beginning. She is there because she is the employee that Mr. Lauren identified was most desperate for the money because she's supporting her entire family. We later find out it's because her family was in a car accident and she's the only one who can work. And so that money is very dear to her. Speaking of which, we did the calculation for you. No, we didn't. We Googled it. Um, $10,000 in 1959 money, which, again, is the amount of the prize that they will receive, equates to approximately $90,200 in 2021 money. So nice to put it in context, too. Mm-hmm. Also, one other... Um, thing of note that I had here um, during their introduction scene where they're all coming up to the house and walking in, you noticed that there was a highway in the background, Mm -hmm. which kind of feels like it sets this apart from your usual haunted house setting. I mean, it doesn't really play into it, but it's just, I don't know, interesting to note that this seems to be in or near the city rather than the usual, like, in the foothills or in the woods, like, kind of mansion. Yeah, for some reason, I just got this vibe. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of the mansions are a couple miles off, maybe, from a small town, or they're way out in the country, or whatever. But they have a shot where one of the characters is looking out onto the interstate, or the freeway, if it's California. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Kind of the impression I got was that For some reason, I was thinking that maybe it was supposed to be that they're kind of in this maybe Hollywood area Mm -hmm. and that they are in California. And I know that I believe I read that the house that they used is an actual Frank Lloyd Wright house. So we could probably look it up and find out where it is, too. Oh, yeah. But I didn't think to do that. Oh, well. So that actually brings us to the next thing I wanted to kind of talk through was the house itself. Um, At this point, as in any haunted house movie um you've been introduced to all the characters and now we're going to have this scene where you see the house for the first time in all of its grandeur uh as you come up the drive and this one was a little different than what i would be expecting note that you can see from the outside that there are bars on all of the windows my note is why (laughs) I would like to know what the story is as to why someone built a mansion and then put bars on all the windows. This does not make sense to me. 
Um, and we speculated a little bit yesterday. And I think my best headcanon I can come up with is that uh, Mr. Pritchard was so freaked from spending the night in the house that he or somebody else previously elected to put bars on the windows to try to keep the spirits in. Yeah. Because the other odd thing is that there's only, apparently only one door. It is huge. It is made out of steel. It's heavy. And it apparently locks such that if you're inside, you can't get out, Mm -hmm. which is the opposite of how doors normally work. I think they mentioned something about it almost being like a vault door. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And then... (laughs) What was it? Oh, um, Mr. Pritchard is like, like a coffin, as though it's this like huge revelation, which is a strange comparison to make. But I suppose that he's right. Coffins don't have doors. So, yeah, Pritchard says a lot of things. Yeah. We'll get into that. Yeah. He really has all these moments where he thinks he's dropping the mic and it doesn't quite land because it doesn't quite fit in with what else is going on. Yeah. Also, interesting thing with the house reveal, and maybe this is more a thing of the times, I'm not sure. Um, Whereas normally, like you said, we kind of will get like a a panning shot up to the house or something like that, where the house comes into frame and it's this big moment. But in this case, we see the house in that very first scene where we get uh, Frederick Lauren's head is it's imposed over an image of the house and so the house really doesn't get that much of a spooky intro an I mean, entrance with pizzazz yeah if you will. an entrance with pizzazz if you will uh i mean later on we get a few more shots of it that maybe kind of fall into that category but the initial reveal is not like what you would see today mm-hmm. where seeing the house is in and of itself a big deal Mm-hmm. Well said. Okay, so then we come into the foyer. We see a glimpse of the millionaire. It really reminds me, again, of Haunted Mansion, which I don't know what released is when it comes to haunted house attractions. <laughs> Uh, wasn't Opened. open to the public, yeah. yeah, until a couple years later, I think. But it reminds me of when you walk into the stretching room and you're in the <laughs> foyer and you're kind of listening to the narration to set the scene. All of the guests are kind of brought into the foyer, standing together. Nobody knows each other. Nobody knows the host, which again, and then there were none vibes, right? Mm-hmm. Um And they have to wait for the host to appear and come down the stairs, Uh, which I don't know if, again, I'm not sure if that's if that's what you did at parties at the time or if that's just him being socially unusual. But that's the eccentric part. I guess. Yeah. And that could certainly be um, he likes to, to be fancy in that way. That's pretty much it for that scene is just, oh, wait, actually, there is the. This is where the first haunting occurs. Yes. Ben's ready to just move on, and we'll just ignore all the spooky parts. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, like, yeah, the, the setup, like you said, is almost exactly like, and then there were none. It's just a scene of them figuring out that none of them know each other. And gossiping and giving us and exposition about the millionaire. I keep yeah. wanting to say billionaire, but it's millionaire. <laughs> For the first haunting, a door slams on its own. <gasps> and then 
a chandelier rattles. He's here. (laughs) Um, And falls on Nora. But luckily, Lance jumps in and saves her. Oh. It's your classic Phantom of the Opera chandelier crash. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I'd be interested to know if this, like, if all of these things that we're pointing out were already tropes or if this created them or kind of set that stage. And that's kind of what I'm hoping we're going to do as we watch more movies and uh, read more books is to find out where a lot of these pieces and features started out. Mm -hmm. One other thing I will say in this scene is they've just met each other and already Pritchard is on his Harbinger game. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that's how Harbingers are. Like, usually that's all they can talk about. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of funny and like as we go through each scene i'm sure we'll talk more about this because every time he is in a scene it's kind of like from cabin in the woods like the idea of the harbinger character who normally you stop at the gas station before you get to the house and they warn you about what's going to come and you're like yeah yeah whatever or sometimes it's a cafe or sometimes it's a cafe mm-hmm. or some in Diner. in town mm-hmm. thing where the people or like someone warns you usually in some kind of unclear terms that there is something dangerous going on this is like if you invited that person to come along with you <laughs> for the duration of your trip uh because that is what he will continue to do in every scene, every time anything happens. He's got to jump in with his commentary. Yeah. Warning of an impending doom that, spoiler alert, never really happens. Right. And also, why are you at this party? It's if that was such clear. a scary incident that occurred, why do you not? Well, why do you feel the need to attend this party? And if you're just as at risk as everybody else... Why are you at this party? And that could have been an interesting storyline to explore of, like, maybe he was there for closure. Maybe exactly. he was there to warn them away I or protect them. Because mm-hmm. Frederick Lauren in the introduction says that Pritchard says he needs the money, which almost implies that maybe he's the only one who doesn't actually and he has other motives. But that's never explored. And that's kind of a theme here is references two story elements that never end up actually being there. And I think some of this is probably a product of this being a William Castle B-movie where he wants to spook you as many times as possible. He doesn't want to tell you a coherent story. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe if that's what comes out as a coherent story, that's great. Exactly. If not, you're probably only going to see it the one time. Maybe it was the thought process. So. Yeah, you'll you'll. It, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. it definitely has that effect of like, ooh, what's going to happen? And then, oh, absolutely. It was only. I feel like we only noticed the inconsistencies, for the most part. Yeah. The majority of them, I think, we didn't notice until the second time watching, Very when true. we knew to look for them. And so, I think it would be really easy to hear the spooky thing and then just kind of forget <laughs> about it as you move on to the next thing, because there's always like flashbang something going on. So yeah, it, it would kind of be like. Watching a thriller where the second time around you actually don't pick up on more stuff because there wasn't anything <laughs> else. Yes, that sounds about right. Uh, so yeah, Frederick Lauren uh, goes up to his room to meet with his wife. And this is where it's repeated that the party was her idea, but also revealed that he chose the guests, um, which was not part of her plan um and 
she has some comment about hoping it would be their friends. He mentions that they don't have any friends, and she responds that that's basically his fault because he's extremely jealous. Um, basically, this is just a scene with some really good banter. Yes, um, so fun. One of my favorite scenes, I think. Yes, and I guess, which makes sense since they're kind of the two top billings uh, for this film. Um, that, yeah, it, it's it's one of those scenes where like the two two people talking very openly about how they despise each other, but in a kind of amiable way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they're very open about the fact that they kind of want to kill each other and have attempted to. Yeah, definitely want to kill each other. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. they both have... Or I think only Annabelle has an attempt under her belt. But yes. But it's revealed that Mr. Lauren has had three wives previously, one of which Miss. Uh, disappeared mysteriously and the second two died mr lauren's doctor who checked them out said that it was heart attacks but they were in their 20s so annabelle lauren is a little on edge about this Mm -hmm. it's kind of implied that she's maybe survived longer than the others have Mm -hmm. not a whole lot to say about this scene in the context of a horror movie i don't think um of a haunted yeah, house I, this, film. This felt more like it went toward the murder at the dinner party yeah. uh, archetype rather than the haunted house story. It's kind of laying the potential motives for murder. And her costumes are beautiful. Oh, I, she has some great yeah, costumes. I absolutely love those looks. I thought they were great. Yes. And it shows you the master bedroom, or what I assume <clears throat> is one of the nicer, nicer bedrooms in the home, and it is quite ornate. Uh, you got your Victorian wallpaper, Victorian everything. Side note, there is no electricity in this house for some reason. Yes. Um, and so it's all gas lights and candles, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, one other thing, which will be important to the story later. Uh, Frederick reveals that he is aware of her infidelity, um, but obviously he does not have any evidence at this point, or any hard evidence that he could use to divorce her. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're down to the salon, or the living room, I believe they call it. Um, they're about to have drinks. Apparently no mm-hmm. dinner. This was upsetting to me, as I noted earlier. Um <laughs> I forgot. At this point, Richard just like <laughs> casually <laughs> with nobody asked. No. He just casually opens up a secret compartment in the arm of the chair he's sitting in and pulls a knife out. And not just any knife. Nope. The knife that killed his brother. And he feels the need to tell everyone about it. Yes. He tells this creepy story of how his brother's wife killed him and her sister in the house and then chopped them up to little pieces and their heads were never found. Yes. And for some reason, this bothers no one. They're just like, okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Even if they weren't bothered by the story, I would have at least expected them to be bothered by the fact that they're about to spend the night with a man who keeps murder knives hidden in armchairs. (laughs) But, oh well. Um, And then this is where we see the psychiatrist 
step in with his explanation that the story sounds like an instance of hysteria as opposed to an instance of haunting. And, oh, also Pritchard being the harbinger, still carrying the knife, uh, tells Frederick Lauren to call off the party, Mm -hmm. uh, but then does not try very hard to get him to do it after Lauren just kind of brushes him aside. Yeah, it's like, oh, (laughs) this is the part where I do this. Okay. And actually that brings up, we get to a couple more tropes at this point. Um, They are in the living room slash salon slash having drinks, whatever. Mm -hmm. And they learn the history of the house and why it is haunted. Um, So in this case, again... That was what we believe is the most recent murders that have occurred. We also learn that Mm. when it's time to lock up the house, no one will be able to hear them. And they'll be stuck there, isolated Mm -hmm. with no electricity. No phone. No phone. No uh, way to the outside world. And that is, of course, another haunted house trope. Mm -hmm. We also learn that four men and three women have died in the house. And Pritchard takes that moment to point out... There's four men and three women here, and then nothing ever pays off. Uh, yep. And then we go on a tour of the house. And that's where we get the, the history of the rest of the deaths. Mm-hmm. The first death that they show us was a blood stain in the ceiling? Yes. Where he says young girl, it's 1959, that could have meant, like, I think we talked about, like, that could have meant anything. Like, this could have been a little kid, or this could have been a woman, like, up until, like, her late 20s yeah. or something. I mean, they do literally call Nora a young girl at another point, so I'm assuming yeah. Nora age. Um, and so, all we have is Pritchard's account, and he says that she was killed by something that seemed not human. Um, presumably implying, like, the ghosts that haunt the place. And... While standing under the blood stain, uh, Ruth Bridges gets some blood drops on her hand, which causes Pritchard to exclaim, It's too late. They've marked you. Um, nothing will end up happening to Ruth. Literally nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I have all. in my notes, Ben is exasperated. <laughs> I am. <laughs> just, uh, yeah, it just... If this were a different movie, this character would be played for laughs, but they keep trying to play him for spooks. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, it's this kind of thing where it's like they had two scripts for two different movies, mm-hmm. and then they threw them up in the air and scrambled them all together, and Pritchard is from the other script, and everyone else is in this other movie. Basically, yes. And, and there are times when, like, and not even as a joke, like, there are times when the things he says have no bearing on the rest of the scene. Nope. And are just completely disconnected. Yeah. So after that, they're taken to the cellar, uh, where what we're kind of told is the first original murder happens. Um, the house originally belonged to a Mr. Norton. Um, and we are helpfully informed uh, that he's dead, but he didn't die here. He was electrocuted later. The owner was a wine connoisseur who experimented with his own wines and such. 
I don't remember why he murdered his wife. Oh, it's because she didn't like the wines he was making. Oh, that was why? Yeah, she said he <laughs> it wasn't very good. So she didn't like his wine. So, uh, rationally, he filled their wine pit, because the house has a wine pit, with acid and threw her in. At which point Pritchard demonstrates with a rat corpse that he finds in the cellar. In a and mousetrap. In a mousetrap. Yeah. He throws it in to the pit that is still filled with acid. That's got to be a trope, actually, now I'm thinking of it. Like, you have a rat or something to demonstrate. Yeah. Because you do that to, like, demonstrate it's an electric fence or whatever that this thing is unsafe. But, like, something, yeah. And then it comes back later, of course. Of course. This is a Chekhov's acid pit. <laughs> um, nice. Unlike other things that seem like they would be Chekhov's whatever and then don't. There's no payoff. But yeah. this one actually is. Um, for some reason, years later, this vat of acid is still present. Pritchard uh, uses this as an example of how all the murders taking place in the house have been wild and violent. And I think he even says just, like, different. And, yeah, that's pretty much it that we get for the history of the murders. It's leaving out quite a few. Uh, for instance, we're only aware of a single man who's died there. All the women are accounted for, but we don't know anything about the other three men who have supposedly died, which implies there's maybe some more history. Maybe they just picked numbers that lined up with the number of guests and didn't bother to think through uh, the rest of the history of the house when writing the story. Uh, you decide. Maybe they just died of natural causes. Yeah, maybe they died of natural causes. Although I guess causes. that goes against what Pritchard just told us. So, But then most of the story goes against what Pritchard tells us. That's so. true. So the rest of them file out to go back to the salon. But on their way out, Lance kind of positions himself to be able to keep Nora back, um, closes the door to the stairs uh, so he can speak privately with her. They do a little exploring they find a couple of closets, and then Lance finds a third one that he wants to go take a look in. The door slams on him on its own, and Nora is left alone in the wine cellar. At this point, an old woman in black appears, rolls in and rolls out. Yep. I'm saying, I think she was supposed to be floating, but it definitely seemed like she was on wheels. Mm -hmm. um, also, the gaslight's dim. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. The way that this was shot felt very classic in terms of you see the heroine looking very fearful, but you can't see what she's looking at. And then it cuts to the scary thing. And then it cuts back to her reaction. And then it cuts back to where she was looking and there's nothing there. Well, and even more than that, it, the thing just like kind of fades. Like she rolls in and rolls back out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it uh, To our eyes, it comes out pretty comically. Uh I'm sure it was pretty fun and spooky at the yeah, time. Yeah, I'm sure that, yeah, at the time that was probably pretty good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Nora then runs to safety, looking for the others in the salon, tells them all about it. Of course, they go down to investigate and find nothing, except they do find Lance in that closet he was looking around in. I think it was a hallway or something. Um, and he has a head injury. But there's nothing in there, and there's no doors. It's a dead end, so 
he couldn't have walked into the wall and hurt his head. So what mm-hmm. happened? We don't know. Yeah. And at this point, I have in my notes, Pritchard claims the ghosts hit him. Theremin agrees. <laughs> <laughs> this film makes heavy usage of the theremin, mm-hmm. as it should. Ben's favorite instrument. <laughs> I'm actually not joking about that one. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, they're just cool. I just think they're neat. <laughs> um, also, at this point, there's a little bit of Dr. Trent possibly laying some of the seeds of doubt um, mm-hmm. because he shows up to attend to Lance. Um, and he points out that the only way that this could have happened was if Lance had run into the wall and obviously makes it sound like that's highly unlikely. So we see Dr. Trent, uh, probably for reasons that will be revealed later, um, trying to kind of lean into uh, a little bit of the spookiness while still maintaining his air of professionalism, mm-hmm. I think. He also says that Nora has hysteria. Because of course he does. Mm -hmm. But then later he'll say she doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) So um, at this point, Nora and Lance go back down to investigate the cellar. Again. They find a hollow wall between two closets. And another haunting occurs. Mm -hmm. This time, the woman, the old woman she saw earlier rolls by and we see a a better image of her kind of more close up. Um, She looks like Margaret Hamilton, I think her name is, who was the original Wicked Witch, in my opinion. Wicked Ah. Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Um, It's a little odd because she rolls in in this very like hunched over cackly pose. I'm I'm not really Uh quite sure how to describe it, but Uh, She's got her hands and claws next to her face, if you can kind of picture that classic witch look. Um, But she's not moving any of her... She's not moving her arms as she, like, floats in. And it definitely looks like she's on roller skates. (laughs) She rolls in, and then she rolls out. (laughs) She just skates out the door. And somehow Lance doesn't see her? Like... The movie wants us to think that, like, that she actually was a ghost because Lance didn't see her, but we, like, she doesn't later learn that she was real, yeah. and she wasn't translucent, and I'm starting to question Lance's abilities as a test pilot <laughs> <laughs> if he couldn't see this woman roller skate out of the closet. <laughs> I don't even know. It's so weird, because, like, he should have seen it. Mm-hmm. And so it's either he's gaslighting her, right, <laughs> or he is not believing her because out of his own maybe he's hysterical. Aha. Uh-huh. To the point where he refuses to see the reality in front of him. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. There we go. <laughs> I don't know. We're giving yeah, this way too much thought and credit, but hard to analyze this movie too hard because yeah. it's it is what it is and it doesn't try to be anything more than what it is. Yeah. And yeah. it's good at what it is. I don't know what it is, but it's good at it. <laughs> Clearly, yeah, because it's stood the test of time. So next, Annabelle shows Nora to her room. <laughs> she tells her not to go anywhere alone and then leaves her in her room alone. <laughs> and next, Annabelle shows Lance his room and uses that opportunity to create an alliance, requesting that he protect her in case her husband tries to kill her. Um, after that, we get another scene with the Laurens that's really not that important to the plot. Um, it does have just one 
quick quote that I have to share um, because it might be my favorite line in the movie where Frederick, uh, speaking about marrying Annabelle, says it was rather a mistake to which Annabelle replies, you didn't marry me, dear. I married you. Unpleasant, but no mistake. <laughs> um, and they just have a little bit more about her not wanting to go down. He gets violent with her and forces her to take part in the rest of the night's events. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go back to Nora, and this is when she finds the head in her suitcase. Which we are to assume is one of the two heads of Richard's <clears throat> relatives. Yep, which he said were never found. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so when she runs off from that, for some reason she decides to go behind this curtain at the end of the hallway. A man grabs her, says she should come with them, quote, before he kills you. She, with very good reason, runs away from this person uh, screaming and then runs back down to the salon. In the salon... There is a very dramatic entrance of the double doors creaking open together to reveal the caretakers standing there. We recognize the woman as the woman in black that Nora had seen twice in the cellar. Um, And I think we can easily assume that the man who had just grabbed her to try to convince her to leave uh, was the man that is standing there. Mr. Lauren explains that these are the caretakers and that it is five minutes to midnight, I think. And it's their last opportunity to choose to leave if they wish, but of course they won't get the money if they do, because the caretakers are going to close up and then that's it until eight o'clock in the morning the next day. Mm -hmm. And then literally after he says this, they realize that the house has been locked up <laughs> and the caretakers left early, even though they were trying to give Nora the opportunity to escape. Yeah. And she was literally about to say, wait, I don't want to stay. And um, she did not get that opportunity. That was also, weird timing. Yeah. And Pritchard claims that they never leave early, implying something has happened to them. But again, we never learn what happened. Correct. (laughs) He then gives them party favors, which are in these cute little coffins. He has a gun for each person. Nora suddenly announces that she found the head. She's starting to get pretty upset, reasonably. They head up to go... Head up to go (laughs) look at the heads. And of course there's nothing there, because that's how this goes. Mm -hmm. And... The doctor offers her a sedative. Mm -hmm, And says that she's hysterical. And Pritchard helpfully says, they're closing in on her. What does that mean? I don't know. We're never going to find out. (laughs) So the head's gone, but then literally, like, the next scene, Lance goes in and finds the head in her closet. I think that was the second head. I think that was the other head. Oh, was that the second head? Yeah, because that accounts for both of the heads. Oh, okay. So he finds another head. And it also looked different, I thought. Yeah. Oh, also, so Nora's missing from her room when he goes in. He takes the head to Pritchard, who states, They've taken her. In a little while, she'll be one of them. This is not true and does not happen. (laughs) Also, this is 
another one of my favorite parts. Um, he's holding the head. He strides over to Pritchard and then casually sets the head on the table on his way over to Pritchard and they don't do anything about Nothing it. Nothing is ever done with the head after this point. Nope. <laughs> yeah, uh, they go to try to find Nora. They pop into the stairwell just as they see a woman hang, uh, be hanged from a rope. They do that thing where all we can see are her feet and her white gown, so we're not really sure who it is. You're supposed to think it's Nora because that's who they're looking for, but instead, it's revealed to be Annabelle. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, I was yeah. going to note, I think this is like a, a visual thing we see a lot in haunted houses and haunted house stories, is someone has hanged themselves or has been hanged by somebody else, in the area of the Grand Foyer, Grand Staircase. This is something that happens in the stretching room at Haunted Mansion. Sorry about the Haunted Mansion spoilers. (laughs) Um, At Disneyland. We also see this in The Haunting of Hill House. Mm. And we see this motif occur in American Horror Story as well. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of other stories that I'm not thinking of. I'm, again, curious to see if this goes back further uh, to previous stories that happened before this one. Yeah. Um, Also of note, Dr. Trent confirms Annabelle's death. This will be important later. In the hallway, Lance finds Nora, who says she was strangled and left to die in a closet, and she's pretty sure it was Mr. Lauren. Um, Lance leaves Nora in her room and tells her to use the gun if she needs to. I feel like there's often a moment in these movies where the woman who has been having all the hauntings happen to her and who everyone is like, I don't know if it's really real, they put her in a room somewhere with some sort of weapon and she's like don't leave me alone and they leave her alone and then something happens to her and I I feel like that happens in a lot of movies where at this point in the game you're like stop separating Mm -hmm. but they separate again for some reason and you're like why why are you doing this (laughs) Um, a couple other things happen but the kind of jumping to the main points um, they regroup in the salon to discuss the hanging Everyone agrees that it was probably a murder based on the evidence available and agree that everyone should go up to their own room and stay there for the rest of the night because they reason anyone who's innocent can just stay safe in their own room and anyone who's guilty is giving themselves up by leaving the room. Um, And they hope this way that will prevent any more murders from occurring. Nora, back up in her room sees the lights flicker again, Mm -hmm. and an apparition appears outside her window, which is Annabelle kind of floating in her second-story window. This kind of reminded me of The Turn of the Screw, uh, which we'll be discussing later as well. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of an image that I got. So Annabelle shows up outside the room and sends the end of her rope comes crawling in through the window and wraps around Nora's leg. And then 
unwraps, pulls back away, and Annabelle disappears. It is kind of neat. I'm pretty sure for the rope coming in and wrapping around her legs, I'm pretty sure they're just playing a reversed version of the rope being pulled away from her legs. But it's always kind of fun when they can do things like that to make it look like the opposite's happening. Mm -hmm. Then does she... I think she runs away out of her room. Yes. And then sees Annabelle's hanging corpse Mm -hmm. and another old grungy hand. Almost looks like uh, a wolf man. (laughs) Tries to... Yeah, it's a different grungy hand, but like kind of the same feel. Um, Tries to reach around her face and cover her mouth. So she runs to the living room and... The piano starts playing, and this. I think it's an her. organ. Is it an organ? I thought so. Oh, okay. Oh, it you're right. Like an organ. It was a little. Yeah, it was like a little. Which I was gonna say, like that's not creepy until I realized I think it was supposed to be an electric organ, and the power's out. Oh. Da na Do they even have power at all? There? In the fifties. Well, no, in that house. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You're correct. They don't have electricity in the house. You're okay. Right. Yeah. So I guess well, now I'm wondering why does that organ. house have an electric organ? Because it certainly wasn't a pipe organ. A pipe organ, right? I don't remember. I definitely got the impression it was an electric organ, but maybe Unless, they just yeah. have one because they're creepy. That could be, and it's creepy when it plays itself. Yeah, it could be. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is the least of our worries. <laughs> <laughs> I just hadn't thought about the fact that, like, if that house doesn't have electricity, why would you have an electric organ? <laughs> it's one of the unsolved mysteries. <laughs> Unless maybe they normally do and they just turned it off. Also, if Richard this. needs the money, why doesn't he sell the house? For just real, throwing that though. out there. Which could potentially have played into a mystery of why is he there in the first place. But mm-hmm. we don't get any more of that. Anyway. I have a note that there is liberal theremin use. And it is revealed that David and Annabelle... David is the is Dr. Trent, the psychiatrist. Yeah. Mm-hmm are in cahoots. They are a couple, and they are scheming together to kill off Mr. Lauren, Mm -hmm. presumably to get his fortune and so that they can be married. Yeah. Um, The idea being that they have set up Nora to be in a panicked enough state, um, and by sowing enough seeds of Mr. Lauren being the source of the violence going on that night in the hopes that she will attempt to shoot him on sight. It's also revealed that they were apparently behind the heads as well. They're yeah, responsible the severed heads. for the heads. Mm-hmm. Oh, they also reveal how they did the hanging. Um, Annabelle was wearing a hanging harness. This does not explain how she was able to hover outside of Nora's room when... They've there are bars it, on all the windows. There were bars on all the windows, and it's been made clear that no one is able to get out of the house. We forgot to mention, reveal, Annabelle is alive. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we come to Nora in the cellar again. Uh, and once again, the lights go down, and Mr. Lauren comes down the stairs. Uh, he has a brief moment of urging Nora to stop and Nora shoots him and Mr. Lauren goes down. Subsequently, Dr. Trent comes out from a secret passageway in the wall, so it's revealed how 
some of the shenanigans have been going on. He's had access to these secret passageways uh, throughout the house. He then tries to take Mr. Lauren to an acid vat, uh, but before he can, it fades to black, and we just hear a grunt. So, what could have happened? What indeed? Mm-hmm. All the doors close when Annabelle comes down. Um, the vat of acid is open, and she calls out to Dr. Trent. At this point, the main featured actor in this film, Skeleton, <laughs> uh, portraying himself, rises from the vat, and she hears her husband's ghostly voice talking to her, uh, telling her to come with him to the afterlife. The skeleton backs her up against the vat, and she falls in. After she falls in, then Mr. Lauren comes out from a hiding place with an absolutely ridiculous marionette rig that he has apparently rigged throughout this entire cellar such that he could make a skeleton rise out of the vat of acid, which didn't burn the rope off of the skeleton marionette, and it's revealed that somehow he knew this whole time that they were a thing and that they were plotting to kill him. He has one-upped them by loading blanks into everyone's guns and then pretending to be dead and then successfully killing his wife, but... I guess in this case, potentially getting off because she tried to kill him first, so... But he's also implied that at this point he's up for whatever justice decides for him. Um, and he just kind of walks off. <laughs> Goes back upstairs as everyone comes down to the cellar. He explains what happened. It's revealed that there were no ghosts involved at all, at which point... We zoom in on Pritchard, who, just after it being revealed to him that all of this happened as a human, physical, practical thing, implies that there are now more ghosts in the house, and says that they are coming for me now, and then they're coming for you, despite the ghosts never coming for anybody <laughs> this entire film. And that is it. Ominous laugh and chains. And then I think we kind of, like, zoom out through the door as it shuts. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the summary. We are going to take a quick break, and then when we return, we will talk a little bit about where this fits into the genealogy of the archetype of the haunted house and give our overall feelings and ratings as well. So, Laura, what do you feel is this film's place in the genealogy of the haunted house story? So, I think there is still research for us to do, and I think that's kind of part of what this podcast is about. But I think this is a good starting point that I feel like might actually be somewhere in the middle hmm. um, from my preliminary research kind of tracing backwards and forward. I can definitely see that there 
seem to already be tropes because we see similarities between this and the Haunting of Hill House book that, you know, came out the same year, as well as, of course, Haunted Mansion, like I mentioned earlier. I can definitely see how it would have been influenced by Agatha Christie, and then there were none. I also saw in my research that it was influenced by The Cat and the Canary, which I believe was a couple of films in a stage play, maybe. And that's one that I'm interested to get into and take a look at that, especially because it also influenced some of the other works we're going to be looking into as well. Um, so that seems to be a key piece. Let's see. There's also Benighted, which then led to Old Dark House, which is thought to be another influence for House on Haunted Hill. Mm. So I th- I'm interested to see how similarly those play out. I believe that The Cat and the Canary also involves someone being able to last a time in a house that they have inherited, I think. Um, and so there's a lot of money at stake in that one, which is a pretty similar device, I think. It certainly carries a lot of those same tropes that we would expect to see. The haunted house is just what you would think of it, at least on the interior. It has all these macabre aspects that are pretty classic. And we know that this was one that was considered pretty influential in terms of William Castle's works. So, and a lot of people saw it, a lot of people liked it, a lot of people enjoyed that Emergo thing, Emergo. <laughs> I don't know if it was Emergo or Emergo. Yeah, and so um, I think for better or for worse, this probably played at least some role in kind of expanding into B-movies Yeah. Um, for the Haunted House movie. Yeah, well, and we also know that, like, Hitchcock was influenced by this film in making Psycho, and uh, from what I've seen, a number of modern-day directors all list William Castle, and particularly House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler, as being very influential on them. Um, so yeah, it's it's very much a formative work. Well, that's excellent. I'm glad that we got a chance to watch it twice. Um, <laughs> that was really fun. And it was really fun to kind of delve into the details here and experience a, kind of a different type of film than I've ever, I've ever watched before. So I really enjoyed that. So now we're going to do a few ratings. This is on a scale of one to five, one being womp womp and five being, Ooh, <laughs> Take that for what you will. Okay. Um, and we're going to have a couple of different scales we're going to look at. Okay. So the first scale is going to be spookiness. Oh. How would you rate it on a scale of one to five spooks? Huh. I think I'm going to give it a three, and here's why. In a modern context... I think it rates pretty close to a one. Like, it got me with one jump scare, but all the rest of the stuff, even aside from the dated effects, like, even aside from that, like, it just isn't... We've come so far in horror movies that that kind of stuff just doesn't have an impact anymore. However, 
I feel like for the time it came out, this was probably like a five type of deal. Especially if, like, you weren't used to swinging skeletons showing up in your theater and things like that. Um, and just knowing the kind of hype that William Castle liked to build around his things. So, yeah, that's where I get my three. What about you? <laughs> <laughs> I would probably give it... I was going to give it a really low rating because the effects weren't that scary and the story wasn't that scary but now that I'm thinking back on it and similarly to kind of what you said taking it out of today's context it actually is pretty scary they genuinely got me at the beginning with the dark and the screaming that was awesome and that that definitely held up and honestly it's pretty creepy and pretty macabre so if I think about the story as a whole and try to remove 2021 me <laughs> from the equation. And also try to remove the fact that I definitely use picking it apart as a defense mechanism. Because I get scared really easily. And even today as we've been recording, I've gotten a little creeped out. <laughs> um, when I'm watching the movie, I try to use the cheesiness to remove myself from it so I don't get as scared. Mm. Um genuinely it's a scary story it'd be a scary situation i have a tendency to insert myself experiencing it as the female lead typically Mm. uh or the ingenue character because that's the phase of life i relate to or at least (laughs) in my brain i feel like i relate to and yeah that's a pretty creepy scenario for either of the young females so yeah um the next rating we're going to do is on a scale of one to five haunts, how haunted is this house? Pritchard wants us to think it's a five. Looking at how many things that happen that can't be explained by the shenanigans that Dr. Trent and Annabelle are pulling. There are certain things that they pull off that, like, shouldn't be actually possible, but it's implied that there isn't some supernatural reason for why she's able to float outside the window. So, just looking at the things that couldn't be explained otherwise, we've got the blood dripping, and we've got the wolfman arm. <laughs> and maybe some mysterious motion behind curtains when everyone else is technically accounted for. Yeah, ultimately there's not that many plot-relevant things that actually involve a haunting, but there are some. So I'll give it a two, where like a one I feel like would be a everything in this movie can be explained without a metaphysical component or like a supernatural component this has a few things that do but they're not that important to the movie and they're just kind of random uh so yeah i I give it a two i'm gonna give it a three and that's partially because i interpret the scale a little differently from you but i think that's okay Mm -hmm. um because we just answered the one question and i purposefully was a little vague about it because Mm. i think there's a lot of different directions you could go. So to me, in terms of how well this fits the haunted house concept, mm. I'm going to give it a three 
Um, a lot of my qualms have to do with the fact that it's simultaneously trying to be like a murder mystery dinner party situation <laughs> that takes a, a lot of the focus away and ultimately makes it so that there's no argument for a supernatural component at all, but rather there's just a couple people who want to murder each other and they have some convoluted plans <laughs> of how they're going to do that. And like, that's uh -huh. kind of fun, but not exactly a haunted house story. But if you just look at the tropes and everything, it definitely is chock mm. full of them. So yeah. that's why I'm going to okay. give it a three. I can see that. Yeah. Like it leans on, it leans on the haunted house tropes, mm -hmm. regardless of whether it actually is a haunted house. Yeah. And another thing that's missing for me is that a lot of the time you're going to get some interesting backstories. You're going to get some relational conflict, some interpersonal conflict, some discussion of this, of sanity or this mm. discussion of, you know, skeletons in the closet and you're hidden, not literal skeletons, I should specify, mm -hmm. Sometimes the metaphorical skeletons. <laughs> skeletons. Yeah, because this movie definitely had literal skeletons <laughs> in the closet, but we're talking about metaphorical ones. Um, which I, th I think is also a component of haunted houses because oftentimes the house represents more than just a structure. The house represents psyche and um, delving into all of that and what it brings out in a person. And we didn't get any of that. Um, I think it's easier for that to come in text than in film anyway, but there was not, I didn't think there was even an, an attempt to kind of go into that. Yeah. Um, because everything stayed pretty superficial, which again kind of matches with its genre. So yeah, and speaks to William Castle's style, which is kind of all about flash and appearance, mm -hmm. at least from my yeah my experience. Well, and so I mean, far with his work, I do think that's like half the fun of a haunted house, but yeah. it was missing that other half for me. Yeah. So, um, are there any ratings you want to ask about today? Oh, because I just had the two. I didn't know I could come. I could. I could bring my oh, own. Whoops. Oh, uh, hmm. So since this is the haunted spouse podcast, we'll do one more scale. On a scale of one to five, how much spouse is in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Can it be one to five ex-wives? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, I mean, it was a a central part of the narrative. Uh-huh. I'm going to say it was a four. And the only reason I'm not giving it a five is, like, I, I really enjoyed the banter and we did get some backstory. But, again, similarly to what I was complaining about earlier, it could have gone deeper and maybe that wouldn't have been common in the 50s but i think they could have done a little bit more to explore the relationship and if they had solid five from me yeah so there okay. you go that's how spousy it was <laughs> in my opinion i i'm gonna give it a five since the spouse relationship is like you said kind of the driving force behind the whole thing they were my favorite characters. Oh, yeah, they're great. Probably because it seems like they may have been played by the two best performers. <laughs> but they were also both written in a really fun uh, fun way. Their banter was nice. Um, 
Also, I mean, if we're like like you joked, if we're counting up number of spouses, <laughs> we've got that one. We've got his three ex wives. We've got the theoretically soon to be spouses, Doctor Trent and Annabelle, or the would be spouses. Um, and then we've got spouses who died in the house. Mm-hmm. So oh, and yeah. I was gonna say too, based on what little information we have, I think one could make the assumption. Or infer that that was due to an infidelity situation between Mm. when you hear about a woman killing her husband and her sister. To me, without any other information, it's pretty tropey to be like, oh, they had a thing going on. Mm -hmm. An extramarital relationship, perhaps. So that would also be a a special theme as well. Uh Uh-huh. Now I'm wondering if that's what they were implying. Because Dr. Trent makes some comment on, Mm -hmm. like, not directly implying that, but, like, kind of, yeah. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to start the podcast over because this changes everything for me. (laughs) Uh, Completely reinterprets the story. (laughs) Just kidding. It does not at all. But that is why I give it a five. Okay. So, I think that about does it for House on Haunted Hill, 1959. Next episode, we're going to be delving into a very well-known haunted house in California. And also Florida. And also some iterations in other places. We're going to be talking about Haunted Mansion, the Disneyland slash Disney World slash everything else attraction. Ben is going to be taking the lead on that for the most part, and we will see where that takes us. The original Disneyland Haunted Mansion attraction was developed over a course of many years that overlapped with the House on Haunted Hill movie, as well as The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. A lot of the influences were pretty similar, so I thought that it would be kind of fun to make them a trifecta and take a look at how they may have developed parallel to one another and maybe influenced one another. Not sure. Guess we'll find out. Um, any thoughts about that, Ben? Yeah. Uh, in my research, one of the things I've been looking into is the idea that even just the story of the making of the Haunted Mansion is in its own way a haunted house story of sorts. So we will get into that next time. Ooh. Tune in next time for that. And I think that about does it. Thank you so much for joining us today as we discussed House on Haunted Hill. Uh, We had a great time delving in and ragging on it a little bit and also kind of appreciating it for what it is. Give us a follow on social media. We are at Haunted Spouses on most social networks. Or you can send us an email, hauntedspousepod at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you all. Everyone have a spooky week. Oh, and remember, that head's still sitting on the table. (laughs) I like that one.